This is Fundraising Radio, and today is a guest speaker. We have Janelle Javeri, founder and chairman at School Mint, and a venture partner at Rona Capital. And today we're going to talk about mostly how startups get acquired because School Mint was acquired by K12. And in this episode, Janelle is going to share his experience about selling his company. So Janelle, let's kick off by you giving us some background on yourself, on School Mint, and on Rona Capital. Awesome. No, thanks so much, Constantine. Excited to be part of this um, radio and uh, excited to be talking right now with a group of you guys. Um, so about myself, um, I'm an engineer turned entrepreneur and I also make investments um, uh, as talk about Schoolman. So this is, um, Schoolman is a company that allows school districts uh, in the US um, manage the whole process of student recruitment student enrollment and student retention. Uh, it's currently used by almost 16,000 plus schools, nine plus million students. And um, and the reason I started the company was because my wife and I, who was also my co-founder, um, we, we saw that the whole process of student recruitment, enrollment, um, and finding the best schools for your kids was extremely manual and cumbersome. Um, when I see there was no solution out there, I built a company um, and uh, luckily we actually found a problem that was just waiting to be solved. So we grew the business um, significantly uh, from 2013 to almost 2017. Um, we raised a bunch of venture money from some of the top investors in the education sector, as well as from Runa Capital. Um, and um, and as we were thinking about what happens to the company next, as we were growing more than 100% year over year, we were uh, looking to raise Series B, um, and we got some um, amazing uh, acquisition opportunities where we could still continue to grow the business under a much bigger umbrella. So after talking to my investors, we were obviously getting a great outcome, um, as well as founders, um, we decided to take the offer and go with the acquisition. Um, since then, I am um, I'm the founder and the chairman of the board. Um, mm -hmm. We we have an awesome team um, that's executing. Um, and then I joined Runa Capital, who were actually my lead investor in Skolman as a venture partner. That's awesome. Um, I'm happy to talk more about Runa. Uh, as as we go first, yeah, we'll definitely this. we'll definitely touch on to Runa Capital. But before we go into that, I had like a huge list of questions prepared for you. But I actually wanted to talk to you first about uh, School Mint a little bit more. So you said you've co-founded this company with your wife, and what I've heard and what I've seen in my personal experience uh, is that some investors don't really like when two family members are working on the same project as they think like. It's not as reliable as it could be, or hey, he couldn't, he or she couldn't find any co-founder besides uh, their family members. Uh, do you think that affected your uh, fundraising process, or was it actually helpful? So you're you're spot on. Um, some investors do have biases towards companies, um, or negative biases towards companies that are founded by either husband and a wife or brothers or family members. Um, and I can understand the rationale. I mean, some of the 
the, the companies, some of the stories you hear about companies like Cisco that were founded by husband and wife, and then eventually a lot of issues happen. Um, so yeah, I mean, we, we did have some trouble in that process. In fact, I remember we had one investor who took my wife and I um, to um, for dinner and we asked him and he's like, um, basically he, he saw how we were interacting with each other, um, how we were getting along um, and as a way uh, to actually see if they were gonna invest or not. So absolutely, um, I think things have changed, I would say, I mean, I've seen more and more Eventbrite is a successful story. There are a lot of other companies that are coming out that are either husband and wife or mm -hmm. brothers. Um, so I feel like the trend is changing, but absolutely, there were definitely some negative biases getting into it. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree with you. A lot of success stories here. Even uh, the famous M13 fund here in LA is founded by two brothers whom I cannot get on my podcast for some dumb reason, but we'll talk about that later. Uh, I actually wanted to talk to you about the second part. You are working, uh, you were working with government, right? With schools and anything government related is usually really slow and the sales cycle should be really huge. So how do you manage to grow so fast? Yeah, so you're right. I mean, um, the, the traditional kind of, uh, uh, the, the folks, the traditional, I would say, like uh, paradigm is that, um, yes, government is tough to sell into, school districts are slow to sell into. Um, and, 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 and if I look back and see like why we grew so quickly, and I think for us, um, uh, it, was, it was a need. So if you think about how school districts get their revenue, um, the only one big way school districts make money is through the number of students they enroll. Mm -hmm. And as more and more schools started looking at us, they realized that not only are we solving the problem of collecting the enrollment information, um, we are actually helping schools attract and enroll more students. Um, as, as we all know, there is a lot of competition in schools. There are public schools, um, there are school districts, there are charter schools, there are private schools, um, there are online schools. And as parents have more and more choice, this competition kept going up. Um, and what we, um, looking back, it's hindsight 2020, what we were tapping into the trend of um, allowing school districts to uh, exceed or, or get to that or even exceed their enrollment numbers. And so um, schools saw that. Uh, obviously, we had awesome product, amazing team, and, and that allowed us to grow much quickly. Got it. That's pretty interesting. So uh, now before we move on back to Runa Capital, I wanted to talk a little bit more about school means success. And I've seen many founders right now, it's uh, like a trend, but they're trying to aim for an exit from day one. So on the page text that yet sometimes I can see that there is a list of potential acquirers of the company. I'm like, wait, are you're in pre-seed stage, but you're already aiming for an acquisition. Do you, Janelle, think that it actually makes sense to do that or is it just a waste of time? I mean, I'm completely against that. I think <laughs> in the earlier stages, um, companies should focus on um, one and one important thing, which is happy customers, right? I mean, I think you, you right. want to find the right product market fit. You want to have the happy customers because they, these customers are going to help you grow. 
they're going to help you bring more customers they're going to help you um, uh, capture the market um, looking at starting the company from a point of view of selling i mean from day one doesn't help because it takes away your focus from what's super important to the business which is finding the product market fit and and building something that customers want to use and want to pay for so i would say like if you focus on that and if uh, at, at that point growth will come um and 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 potential acquires will notice you but you mm -hmm. cannot optimize building a company around an acquisition that's a good point that's a good point for sure so now it's time to talk a little bit about investing actually so what do you do at runa capital yeah so as a founder um it was always interesting like even before schoolman's exit and, and post exit i started engaging with uh, a lot of other founders who are uh, who were going through the same journey that i went through which is or in early stages finding the product market fit finding early customers building the sales and marketing team hiring executives fundraising and so i was already engaged and um i was engaged with a lot of folks outside runa i was also working with some of the portfolio companies within runa and it was very natural that uh, i was having fun doing that um, founders of these companies were also benefiting a lot from my prior expertise in doing this firsthand and and so it was a natural move from i just doing it on an informal basis to now doing it on a more formal basis where um, i do kind of two set of things one is i work with the portfolio companies on different needs so like if someone wants to raise money or if someone wants to think about how to expand their sales and marketing or how to hire executives and stuff um, and if they want to brainstorm different ideas i share with them i share with them what i have learned um i connect with them uh, connect them with other entrepreneurs who have been through the same journey so that's more on the portfolio support and that mm -hmm. includes a lot of other things too like um uh, if they have any one off technical issues they are looking at they want to think about an mna strategy if they want to think about uh, the future fundraising strategy different markets they should tap into i do that um and then the second set of things i do are around um just looking at companies um together with other partners um, um for investments and so um, my personal background is in b2b saas in edu education technology uh, and so that's one of the one of the big focuses for una and so i look at these companies um uh, do diligence on them and then we decide as a group if they are um if we are investing in them or not so pretty much anything that takes um uh, the the company from the top of the funnel um to diligence process understanding the market understanding the business looking at the financials uh, and then deciding whether uh, we are funding that company or not got it that's pretty interesting so uh, let's talk a little bit about your angel investing experience so you're doing some angel investing uh right while being Correct. at runa capital okay got it just clarifying and uh how do you think should founders reach out to you i imagine that you've got tons and tons and tons of uh emails just uh, pitch deck reviews asking for people for uh, to review their pitch decks etc what do you think how at which message will you actually take a look at because i imagine that you have to just ignore some of them right 
Correct. Yeah. So the best way to get to me, especially if you're looking at angel investments, um, is um, through my network. Obviously, if you know someone in my network, um, that's just an easiest way because I already know that I know someone who knows you. That's mm -hmm. much easier. Having said that, um, I also look at every email that I receive, both email and LinkedIn requests I receive from an entrepreneur or looking to raise angel investment. And so best way for you is to find me on LinkedIn um, and send me a message, see what you're doing, what your company is doing, how much you're raising and things like that. And I do review all of them also. That's awesome. That's great to hear. So what do you think are the, and you're reviewing tons and tons of pitch decks, of course, and what do you think are the three most important points that every founder should include in the pitch deck? So I would say like, these are some of the simple things that I would probably um, like focus on. Um, but the first and foremost, in very simple words, explain the problem you're solving, believe it or not, I mean, a lot of founders um, have hard time articulating the actual problem they're solving. Um, so that's important, um, obviously, because this is the venture world, um, but also want to understand how big can this be, um, at least in the earlier stages, um, have a better idea of, okay, if, if, um, if everything goes well, the product is right, the team is right, how big can this be? Because um, mm -hmm. it's important from a, from a venture scale perspective. And the third one is, okay, I understood the problem you're solving. I understand that this is a big market. Um, why are you the right team to solve this problem? Like, what's so special about your uh, experience, your skills, or your team um, that makes me believe that you are the right team to solve the problem that you described? And that has a huge market. So I would say those are the three things that they should focus on. Got it. And here we're slowly moving into the presentation part. What do you think are the three most common red flags that you're seeing during the presentation? I think um, the, the first one I would say is just the, the, the founders, um, founders lack of understanding of the problem or the market, the inability to actually explain that in simple words, the problem they're solving, and then do they really understand the market that they're getting into? Mm -hmm. The second is I've seen a lot of founders really are passionate about the product and, and, and they have technical background to do that. But a lot of them haven't thought through how are they going to actually get customers, um, especially in the B2B segment, how are they going to get some of the first paying customers? Um, and then how are they going to get more um, beyond that? And the third, and that's probably the most important thing that I focus on is sometimes when you're building something um, and you're so passionate about it, um, it's easy uh, easy to be uh, a little bit cocky and, and, and not listen well mm -hmm. or not take the feedback well. And, and that's a red flag for me. Like if as as we talk, as I'm talking to them or my partners are talking to them, like how open are they about that? Are they listening to feedback well or not? Are they open to receiving feedback um, as, as we talk to them? So I would say if they're not, then it's definitely a red flag. Got it. And those, those are pretty important red flags, I think. Uh, 
have some, some, some somewhat similar. And one that I do have is that founders are sometimes enabled to just identify where they can acquire the first paying customers. And that's why I want to ask you, uh, as I already said, working with government related entities like schools is extremely hard. And can you tell us a little bit about how you acquired your first first uh, school customers? Yeah, so one of the things we were very lucky is we were part of this incubator um, called Imagine K-12, which is now part of Y Combinator. And um, as we had the product ready and uh, we got to um, pitch the product to some of the early adopters at some of the schools in the Bay Area. And that was awesome because mm -hmm. we got a group of school administrators who came and looked at what we were building, gave us feedback, and some of them ended up being our very first customers. Um, so I think that was um, that was extremely important. Um, and a couple of other things I've tried. I think it's it's very very critical to to get that uh, first set of few folks who are super excited about it. Um, as some of the the books I think there's a book called. Um, by um, crossing the chasm, um, they, they talk about how you want to get that extremely early adopter who who believes in the, the idea you're uh, solving and, and, and is ready to jump in. And so I've, I've seen folks, uh, if you don't have access to an incubator, find someone on LinkedIn, see if you can reach out to them on the network um, and, and pitch it to them, get the feedback and see if they're open to becoming your first um, uh, Trial customer uh, who wants to try out your product. Right. As a person who worked for a government entity, I can say that people there sometimes have nothing to do and they will be happy to do just to talk with anyone. So, yeah, feel free to reach out to them. I'm pretty sure they will be happy to talk to give their feedback and just, you know, to feel valuable. So, um, I want to talk a little bit about fundraising now. So, uh, for how long were you bootstrapping School Mint? So, we. We bootstrapped it for a few months and then we joined the incubator um, uh -huh. and we got a little bit over 100K. So I would say we're not too long for Schoolment. I mean, I, I, I do I have founded my co-founder and I have also founded another company that helps um, companies build remote teams and that's completely bootstrapped. We have never taken a single dollar. So I think it mm -hmm. could go either way. Um, but so on Schoolment's case, we bootstrapped it for around months or so we got 100k or so and then we grew it um to a few hundred thousand in recurring revenue uh, while we were raising our seed round um, so i would say like a few months how did you manage to get into the incubator so fast so you said that you acquired your first customers in that incubator which is great but how did you manage to get into that Sound that sounds like great incubators so fast after a few months. Yeah, keep in mind this was also a bit early on. I mean, more and more because oh, I'm right. part of the white combinator <laughs> network, more and more companies now come in with a lot more traction. Yeah. Um, so this was 2013, um, and I would say like part of the reason was also because one one additional huge benefit we had um, because we had formed a prior company was that we actually had built custom enrollment solutions for government. And so as we were talking to the incubator, they saw that we understood the problem. They saw that there were 
um, some customers who were ready to pay a custom enrollment solution. And so that um, actually sealed the deal for us and, and allowed us to join the incubator and then the rest is history. That's awesome. Yeah, I totally forgot that it was back in 2013. Just got used to think about it in terms of 2020, yeah. you know. <laughs> so um, let's talk again about Runa Capital. What do you think, uh, what does Runa Capital like to invest in? So Runa is focused on um, uh, kind of B2B SaaS. Um, mm -hmm. And so they're kind of, I would say like two or three top things we focus on B2B SaaS, especially in regulated industries like FinTech, um, educational technology and digital health. And then we also um, invest in deep tech companies. And so our founders at Kuna uh, are uh, entrepreneurs themselves and, and they have formed uh, and built uh, huge unicorns um, in uh, deep technology sectors and so so we, we we kind of that carries on and and we also like to invest in um deep tech, tech companies like middleware open source platforms machine learning platforms cloud infrastructure and so on and so forth god that's that's a pretty interesting topic to invest in so i think here we came up to our last probably question for today and it's the standard question that i try to ask every speaker of mine and it's what first three steps should a founder take to get to the first check from an investor? So I would say like, see if you can get introduced to one of these investors, um, even before you are planning to raise. And so don't, don't go to someone and ask for the money right away. Start building up the relationship, start, get them excited about what you're building and then be diligent about updating them on your progress as mm -hmm. you're building it. Um, so at least start this uh, process a few months in advance as long as you can. Uh, that's even more critical now because a lot of investors are now on a wait and watch and just um, not as open about investing right away. And, and so I think it's even more critical. So get introduced to them and then get them excited about your work. Um, Continue to update them on on the on the on the on the on the traction you are receiving, and then um, and and ideally the type of decisions you are making, like which market uh, markets you are track, uh, tackling, why you are tackling those markets, any customers that you signed up, and 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 continue to kind of um, set up that um, background with them, and and like uh, some sort of rapport with them on. On, um, on 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 keeping them up, update it on, on on what's happening. So once you do that, um, then as you start thinking about raising, um, start setting that message with them and and talk about why you are raising, why you think it's the right time to raise, and then what do you want to achieve um, with the fundraise. Um, keep in mind, I mean, the, the 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 number one job of investors is to invest, right? And so mm -hmm. there are unless they deploy money, um, they, they are not successful. And so it's very important for them to deploy money, but for you to get that money, it's very critical that you kind of follow a good process of getting them, um, help, help them know you better, know your product better, um, and then get them excited about it. So that as soon as you're ready to raise, they already have a lot of background about you and your company. Absolutely. I think that's great advice, especially keeping investors updated on your progress. I've heard a story from one of uh, my previous speaker investors 
who said that probably one of the greatest stories of how he invested was a guy. Uh, I think he sent him an email like exactly once a week for about three months in a row, never missed a week, and showing every single, every new uh, deal that they've created, every new decision that they've made. And he was just so impressed with his consistency that he finally invested. So I think it's a, it's a key, just keeping updated, keeping in touch, remind uh, investors of yourself. Uh, so thanks a lot for reminding our listeners about that important part of fundraising. And uh, we're going to wrap it up here. Thanks a lot, Janelle, for coming up, for taking your time to participate in Fundraising Radio. It was a great episode. Really loved it. Thanks so much, Constantine. Really glad to be here. Thank you for that. Thank Take you. care.